no one should ever feel like they have the right to take another person's life. Hey everybody, welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with my guest, LaDonna. Hey everybody, I'm LaDonna Humphrey, author, podcaster, and private investigator. Uh, I wanted to be a private investigator so bad. You know, that was a goal of mine for a really, really long time, and I was scared to take the test and meet the requirements and do all the things, but... After I'd been working on the Witt case for so long, the Melissa Witt case, um, close to seven years at that point, six or seven years at that point, I, I just said to myself, I'm going to do this. And so I studied and did everything that was necessary. And somehow I passed that test the first time and the rest is history. But you should do it. I highly recommend. I highly recommend it. It's it's pretty awesome experience. And then to be able to work as an advocate as a private investigator is pretty cool, too. So. Absolutely. It's about helping other people. That's what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I wanted to, to have that license just to help me in the Melissa Witt case too. And then I've been able to use it in other things too. In our state, you know, I have to work underneath someone else that's licensed for a certain amount of time. And so there's other things that I do besides the cold case work, you know, like insurance fraud and that kind of stuff. But it's been really interesting and um, I've really enjoyed it. That's what's so cool about it. There's so many different avenues you can go in. It's crazy. I used to want to be a decoy. I thought that would be cool too. So, I mean, I think that when I was growing up, I wanted to do all kinds of things that were crime related. Like I wanted to not not commit crimes. Let me clarify that. Um, But, you know, be an FBI agent, you know, all of those things. So to me, you know, this is not definitely being an FBI agent, but it's it's fulfilling part of that dream that I've had since I was, I mean, old enough to, you know, make those decisions on what you want to do with your life. So it's it's completely worth it. Great. Well, congratulations. I mean, that's amazing to pass on your first try. I did. And you have to get an 80 percent. And I was so scared. And it was me and one other person that took the test at the same time. And it was like a hundred page or hundred question test, not a hundred pages, a hundred questions. And it took the test and then I go and wait in the waiting room and they came out and I was just, I just knew I'd failed. It was a really hard test. And they came out and said, investigator Humphrey, you passed and congratulations. And I was like, yes. So that was pretty cool. I mean, I was excited, but it was, I really wanted to pass on the first time because there's a financial investment in this and it's pretty hefty and I didn't want to have to pay it again. (laughs) And so I was glad that I had passed, but yeah. So it's a lot, a lot of statues that you have to remember. It is. There's a lot. So it's different in every state. And so in my state, it was pretty heavy on Arkansas state law. And then you need to know things about surveillance. They'll ask you about that. And then just different requirements for a private investigator. You know, these type of tests are pretty easy for retired law enforcement. You know, if they retire and then they want to become a private investigator, they can breeze through it. And I think they don't even have to take the test anymore in our state. They just pay for the licensure. So, yeah, there was a lot of that I had to study. I studied for several months um, because I was really, really afraid. They don't tell you hey, these are the questions that are going to be on the test. They just say, you know, study these things. So, yeah, it was it was hard. Do they at least have like some kind of study guide? I know they don't even do that. Like I had to make my own little study guide. And so that was scary, too. Um, But I had help from some other private investigators here who, you know, worked with me and said, hey, study these things. And you know, they quizzed me and were a good support system. And I'm, I'm really glad I did it. No regrets. So I'm going to keep using that license and try to help people, you know, primarily in the field of missing persons or, or cold cases. I love that. So, and, you know, I still feel like it could make a huge difference in the case that I'm super passionate about. And that's the Melissa Witt case. And so I spend all of my time on that right now um, when I'm not writing books or, you know, being a podcaster or a mom or all those things. So, you know, just kind of try to juggle it. Right. Do you want to go into that case? Are you allowed to go into that case? Yeah. 
No, I would love to. Um, so Melissa Witt was abducted in December of 1994 and from a bowling alley parking lot. She just never made it inside. And she was there to see her mom. Her mom bowled on a league and her body was found six weeks later in the Ozark National Forest. And she had been strangled. You know, there was no other broken bones except, you know, the hyoid bone that had been broken when she was strangled. Um, she was nude. They took everything from her. And it's just, it was a horrific case. I'm close in age to her. I'm just a couple of years older. I remember hearing about the case. And we actually had friends in common. Melissa and I had never met, but we had some of the same friends. And so I always knew about it and cared about the case. But then my life just kind of went on. You know, I got married. I had kids. I started working in the nonprofit field. Um, just, you know, how life kind of just takes you where it's going to take you. And um, I ended up starting a nonprofit with a group of people called Let's Bring Them Home. And that agency was around for about a decade and a half. And we offered services to families with missing adults. And we provided all kinds of case management support. And we acted as a liaison with law enforcement. And so when NamUs kind of sprouted out in, and came on the scene, you know, that's a government database for missing and unidentified it was pretty clear that our services weren't going to be needed anymore. And that's what you want to do as a nonprofit is work your way out of a job. And as we're closing out the nonprofit, we decided to do a documentary. And I thought that we were going to do the documentary on just the plight of missing adults in Arkansas or in the United States. But when my team got together, there was 11 or 12 of us. Everybody started talking about the Melissa Witt case. And this is what's so ironic about this because I said, yeah, I know about that case, but she's been found. She was found six weeks later. She's not missing. We're not doing that case. Next. And we just had this back and forth, back and forth. And I said, fine, let's take a vote then. And I was mad. I mean, I was, it's not that I didn't care about Melissa's case, but it was like, that's not what the goal was. And they outvoted me. And everybody said, we're going to do a documentary about Melissa Witt. I was just like, okay. And they sent me to the Fort Smith Police Department. I met with the chief of police and he brought me into the room with a cur the current detective on her case and like all the retired detectives that had ever worked her case. And that was it. When I saw the passion that these men had and I learned the details of the case, I went from saying we're not going to take this case and do this to being this outspoken advocate for her for eight years. So, I mean, as you can tell, I'm either all in or I'm not. And that's what happened here. And so shortly after I met with them, they took me out to the site where Melissa's body had been found. And I can say that that moment changed my life. You know, you're out on this lonely, remote mountaintop. And, you know, I'm the mother of, of five girls. I have two boys and five girls. And I'm out there and I'm thinking about my own kiddos and just that trauma that her family felt that somebody took her life and left her out there. Like she didn't mean anything. And I just promised her when I was out there that day that I wasn't going to stop until I got justice. And here I am eight years later, still fighting. So do you have leads? We do. Um, you know, for a long, long time in the case, the, the main suspect was a man named Larry Swearingen and he had committed a similar crime years later um, he kidnapped and murdered a girl named Melissa Trotter, who was 19 years old, same age as Melissa Witt. And she was kidnapped four years to the week that Melissa Witt had been kidnapped. And she was found an hour away from her abduction site in a national forest strangled. Melissa Witt was found an hour away from her abduction site strangled. And then Larry Swearingen had ties to the Arkansas area and was there within days of her murder. And so there was just this huge effort to try to connect him to the case and lots of circumstantial things, but nothing solid. So he was executed in the Trotter case, but he's still a suspect in the Witt case, but um, he's no longer the main suspect. The main suspect is someone who, you know, for interview purposes, I call him the unnamed suspect because his information has not been released to the public, but it was someone that Melissa knew and knew very well. And he looks really good for it. And so all eyes are pointed to him right now. And that's where we're spending a good portion of our efforts. And I really think that 
this is going to be the year that we get justice for Melissa. I feel like we're really close. Did he leave DNA? Well, there is DNA in the case. I have to be very careful what I say here. So there is DNA in the case. Um, Her body was out in the elements in the National Forest for six weeks. She was out there almost the entire time that she was missing. And as you can imagine, there was rain and snow and sleet because this is December. And then there was small animal activity on her body. And so the DNA that they do have, is it's fairly degraded. There's not a lot left. And if we test it again, we, you know, we want to make sure that we've got the most up-to-date technology. Will it get us anywhere? We don't know just because of the state of the DNA. So that's pretty scary. So I really feel like in this particular case, we're going to need a confession. And, you know, I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but we're going to keep putting pressure on the guy. And I feel I feel like he is pressured. I have contact with him. He's been contacting me for eight years, and I think he feels very pressured. He contacted you? Yeah, he started contacting me initially because he read about the documentary in the newspaper that I've been working on. That's how I got involved in the case. And he would call me and say really strange things. And I just called one of the investigators one day and I said, hey, who is so-and-so? And he said, where did you get that name? I mean, he just, it was very abrupt. And I said, well, he called me and he said, well, we need to talk then. So they called me into the police department and they had to tell me that he was their unnamed suspect. And they had to, at that point, that's when I built the relationship that I have with retired detectives and the lead detective, because then I was able to start talking to him and build a relationship with him and get some information that they would have not gotten otherwise. And so he's more aware now that I'm aware of who he is and, you know, that potential just because I've written the books and I'm so vocal. I'm sure he'll listen to this podcast. He likes to listen to them all. And I think he'll eventually mess up when we all do everything that's done in the dark comes out in the light. Eventually, you know, his day's coming, it's coming. And I do believe that Melissa will get justice. I think that we've made tremendous strides in her case. You know, it went from relative, relatively, you know, no internet coverage when I got started in 2015 to, I mean, we've just kind of blown that out of the water with interviews and, you know, we're releasing the documentary, the books and all the things. And so we're just not going away. And I think that's what's going to trouble him the most is that he just can't get rid of us. And and we'll just keep going, keep going. Well, good. Well, he, he should, you know, I, I told one of the investigators today, I said, he shouldn't be allowed to walk the streets anymore. You know, he needs to pay for what he did. And, and that's just really kind of where we're coming from is that, you know, he can hurt other people. He may hurt other people. And I take that very seriously. And he took somebody's life. You know, she had her whole, her whole life ahead of her. Well, yeah, she was so young. Yeah. And just to be discarded like that, that always bothered me. The way that these people toss their victims, like they're nothing, like they're trash. This was a person. This was a daughter. This was a mother. This was a best friend. They mattered. I mean, that's what they did. That's what he did to Melissa. I mean, you know, he did discard her like she was trash. And that's always bothered me because he just left her out there in the woods knowing that there are animals out there. I mean, he didn't care, obviously. And that I just, I can't imagine the heartache that her mama felt, you know, her mom's passed away now of just not knowing. And then just knowing that her daughter was just left out there and was out there for six weeks. It makes me angry and I want to get justice for her. I just feel like she deserves it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people always question, they, they say to me, why this case? There's so many cases. Why this case? And, you know, my best answer for that is, well, my board of directors for my nonprofit made me do it. Now, you know, that's kind of a joke. But um, I think just being so close in age to her and knowing people that she knew and just watching it on the news and seeing it unfold. And here I am. I'm almost 50. Right. So in this case is been going on since 1994 it's just been a big part of my life and of the community's life and so i i say why not this case it's not solved and she deserves it so right so he must have killed her immediately if not i mean at least the same day that's the belief so when she was in the parking lot 
whoever killed her pretty much approached her immediately from when she got out of her car. And there's some sort of argument ensued. There was a witness that overheard the argument. And so we do have that. She didn't see anything, but she overheard it. And whatever happened between the two of them, it escalated and he hit her in the head with some sort of object. And we believe that that rendered her unconscious. There was blood left behind from that head wound. The head wound was not fatal, but it would have bled a lot. Because that's what head wounds do. And I think he panicked at that point. And he threw her in the car, the truck, the Bronco, whatever he was driving. And he took off. And I think he went to a place that was very familiar to him. Because the the, the part about the case that's really baffling is that this happened at the Fort Smith Bowling Alley. It's a place called Bowling World. And her body was found an hour away in um, a very remote location in the Ozark National Forest. Which And it was on a logging road. And you would not be able to get to that place without knowing where you were going. And you certainly couldn't get back out at night without knowing. And investigators believe that he took her out there that night. He sexually assaulted her. And then he eventually, you know, he strangled her to death. And so I think she was out there from day one. Absolutely. And that is really sad to me. I I lose sleep over this case. Um, you know, it's definitely fair to say that it's an obsession but the details are just so terrible it's hard to comprehend that that happened i see a lot of cases like that and i just don't understand how people can like justify what they do to another person it's crazy to me i don't understand and the fact that it's almost always somebody that you know (laughs) that's scary as shit like that's just not okay we need to work on this. We need to be better. Let's, yeah, it's scary as hell. And, you know, investigators have said from day one that they believed that it was somebody that Melissa knew because of the basis of the argument. It was a very familiar type argument. It was a back and forth between two people that knew each other. And they also believed that the person that killed her, his name is in her diary that she left behind. And this guy's name is in her diary. And I believe that it was someone that she wouldn't date. She wouldn't have sex with him. She wouldn't do those things with him. And he was angry. He had wounded pride. And I think that he he went there that night not to murder her, but to kind of gain control of the situation, maybe try to badger his way back into her life. And it escalated. And then he ended up taking her life. And that makes him a coward. That makes him a piece of shit, too. Yes. You know, for the record. And um, that's one of the aspects of the case that really bothers me, too, because, I, you know, she she probably felt, felt pretty safe being able to stand up to him the way that she did that night, only for it to turn into what it did. And, you know, somebody has to do something about it. And her parents are not alive anymore. So she doesn't have that immediate family. She's got some siblings, some half siblings that are quite a bit older. I think they're in their seventies. And so I'm doing this as a labor of love and I will not stop until that bastard is in jail. I will not. And I think he knows that. So, I mean, it's like game on. (laughs) (laughs) I love your drive. I'd be the same way. You have to think about it though. She was going there to meet her mom, to meet friends How many other people knew where she was going to be and when she was going to be there? Well, you know, her mom bowled on a league and she was going there to see her mom and her her mom bowled every Thursday night. Melissa didn't go every Thursday night, but her friend circle, like what you're saying, would have known her routine, would have known that that was a possibility, would have known that they could find her there that night. And I think that's where he went because he knew that that was a possibility. And, you know, based on what we know that ha- that happened in that parking lot, I think it was like, you know, I want to get my way. Hey, you're going to listen to me. And she's telling him, no, I am not interested. Go away. You know, because I think that she recognized that he was a worthless piece of shit. I, I do. And I think she didn't want to have anything to do with him anymore. And for somebody like that, can you imagine that kind of wounded ego? ego? It, he couldn't take it. And that's why he hit her in the head. And, and here we are today. So. It's also a cautionary tale to other other young women because they're, you know, we all have dated people that are crap. (laughs) Who you tell? Yeah, sometimes we marry them. 
you know, and sometimes we, I'm, I'm, I'm married to a really good guy. So that's not directed to my second husband. Um, but you know, that does happen. And I want young women or women in general to not ignore those warning signs. You know, when someone's trying to be controlling or they push you or they shove you, that's when you're going to, you need to be done immediately. They can say they're sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry, baby. I was just mad. But what are they going to do next time? Exactly. Oh, for sure. When they start trying to control everything, that is a super red flag. That's right. And I think this guy was like waving that red flag, you know, and had been for a really long time. And I think that Melissa was was sick of him. And rightfully so. He he was not going anywhere with his life and he was abusive to women. And I, I really, you know, based on what I know and not like giving too much away, he's just not had a real good track record with women. You know, I'm not that's not surprising, but I do try to go and speak to young women, not necessarily about Melissa's murder, but I do use that as a launching point to talk about intimate partner violence and when to walk away and to kind of help young women see you can't change them. You're not going to change them. That violence is going to escalate. And if you know, if you're going to get murdered by your partner, statistically, you're going to get strangled. That happens so many times. And I'm not giving professional numbers right now because I don't have them in front of me, but I've done a lot of research into this. And that is the number one thing that happens in these intimate partner type situation. So it's just, it's just horrible all the way around. And I hope that that kind of advocacy can help save the next girl for sure. And that is exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's important to know what a healthy relationship is and what it isn't because we can make excuses for all different types of behavior because we don't want to look at it as a problem. But you have to look at the big picture and realize, "Mm, we got an issue here and you need to know better. You have to know that you deserve better and that it's okay to end it and move on. It might be hard at first, but oh my God, it's going to be so worth it in the end. Well, especially if they're violent in any way, or it's not just necessarily... It doesn't always start with just violence. If they're stalking you and they're following you places and they're trying to get into your phone or they want to know everything that you're doing. Hey, sister, that guy is not for you because it is just going to escalate. Maybe not to murder, but you don't know. You don't know. And, you know, that's the part that frightens me the most. And, you know, I, like I said, I have five daughters and you can be damn sure that that's what I teach them. Like, you just don't take it. You don't take anything off of anybody. That's not, that person's not for you because it's not going anywhere good. So I do hope that there is that kind of um, positivity that can, can come out of Melissa's death. So other girls don't get entrapped in situations that can lead to, you know, rape, violence, and, you know, or ultimately murder. So Well, it's scary, especially because a lot of times it's in the heat of the moment, you know, it's in a heat of passion. One day they get really upset and they just go off the handle. You can never expect what somebody is going to do or how they're going to handle a certain situation. Yeah. Well, you can't trust anybody. You know, that's somebody asked me a couple of days ago, I was speaking to a group um, in, in, in our state and they said, so you've done this for so long and you do this kind of advocacy work. Do you trust people? Well, no, of course I don't. I trust anybody, you know, that, that is gone with me because of what I've seen and what I've been a part of. And just the investigative part of learning of how many dirt bags were in the river Valley, you know, that could have been responsible for Melissa's murder or that were sex offenders. I mean, there were hundreds, hundreds, And people don't know what's going on in their own backyard. And sadly, I've been privy to that through this and other cases that I've worked. And there's some scary shit. I mean, it is. It scares me to death because you don't really know who your neighbors are. No. I mean, your neighbor could have somebody locked in their house and you would have no idea. No. And, And that's so I definitely 
probably approach the world much more cautiously. And, you know, I try to find that fine line of how do you let your kids go and be kids? Now, I mean, the, the biggest thing for us is, is that we don't let our kids spend the night anywhere. Nowhere. I don't even care if I said I know your parents. I don't really know them. And if I only know one parent, you know, and I won't go down that that rabbit hole, but that's that's one of that's been one of the major things for me is that I don't entrust my children with very many people because you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And that's what's so scary about it, because people think like there's gonna be signs pointing down on these people saying, you know, watch out for them. But no, these are like your doctor, your lawyer, your kid's coach. Could be anybody. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I want to tell you a story if that's okay. Yeah. This is the point. So um, when I originally started this, there was another detective on the case, and his name was Troy Williamson. And I was in the middle of filming the documentary. And at that time, lots of people were contacting us, you know, and we were asking to interview them or they wanted, to, you know, to talk about the case or they lived in the area. And there was a man that had been communicating with me. And I had decided that we were going to go out and interview him just because he was like a long-term resident of a town that neighbored where Melissa's body was found. And I didn't know the guy, but I was going to take the camera, camera guy with me and we were going to go out there. Okay. But before, and you can call it divine intervention, you can call it whatever you want. But before I went, I decided to stop by the Fort Smith police department and I walked up, they took, take me up to the detectives division and I, wanted to talk to Troy for a little bit. And he had this book of people out that um, were dangerous offenders in their area. And I don't know why this book was open the way that it was, but I looked and I didn't know what it was. And I said, Oh, Hey, that's, I know him. And he said, what do you mean? You know him? And he, he kind of moves the book so I can't see it. And I said, well, I, I'm actually on my way to go interview him. Did you know that? Because you have the book out. And he said, you're not going out to interview him. What are that? What are you talking about? And I said, no, I am. And then we find out he had been holding a girl in his basement at one point. And this girl had escaped and had made a police report about him and he'd been arrested. And I think he served a little bit of time for what he had done. But when they finally went to his house, he had like all kinds of crazy shit in his basement. And I was going over there. So my life changed a lot that day. And so did how I handled the documentary. I mean, you should have seen the look on the camera guy's face. He was like, did you vet this guy at all? At all? I said, I know. I, I believed him. Like, how naive can you be? That's crazy. So new rules came into play after that for um, who I was going to talk to how I would tell law enforcement who I was going to go see and all those things that I was going to do. But that scared the hell out of me. I didn't sleep well for probably a month. Not only were you in contact with him, but you were on the way to his house. <laughs> I know I may have been, I, I could still be in his basement right now. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I deal with scary subjects with humor. So I apologize. I do take it very seriously. Um, but it was a lesson that I learned. And that was a very rookie mistake. Very rookie mistake. And so I'm glad that I didn't make it. And I cannot explain to you why events unfolded that day and, and why Troy had that book open. I mean, but whew, very scary. And so we decided after that that we wouldn't go to people's homes to interview them. And so we didn't. We stopped doing that. And I'm glad we did. <laughs> but you know, I, all that to say is you do not know who you're communicating with. You do not know what their motives are. You just don't know. Right. Why do they keep letting these people out? Just keep them locked away because as soon as they get out, you know, they're just, they're just going to reoffend. Like, what are we doing? Hello? Yeah, I struggle with that. I struggle with the laws in different states. I struggle with how much our hands are tied in a lot of cases because we do live in a free country and there are certain things that are not prosecutable. And in this guy's particular case, you know, the things that he had done weren't enough to keep him behind bars for a very long time. 
But definitely he had plans to reoffend because of the things that they found in his basement. Right. And so, yeah, it's a frustrating process, I think, um, because there are so many dangerous people out there. But sometimes I feel like the law works in the favor of the offender. They do. No, 110 percent. That's always pissed me off. I mean, I know you're innocent until proven guilty. But in some instances, I think you should be guilty until you were proved to be innocent. The people who suffer here are the victims. They have to have all their dirty laundry plastered everywhere. And you really get the shit end of the stick because you're getting re-victimized over and over again. Yeah, you do. That's, that's, that's why I think that's part of the motivation to want to like educate women on how to protect themselves and how to avoid bad relationships if you can, or how, even if you can't avoid the bad relationship, at least be strong enough to see the red flags. I mean, there's so many women in general want to be fixers and they think that they can fix people and they make excuses for the men that they love. And it, it, not just men, maybe it's the women they love too. I mean, there's, there's intimate partner violence with all sexes. I mean, there just is, but yeah, I want to help make a dent in that. So I do try to talk about that as much as possible because I do think that was a factor in this particular case. Right. It's the factor in a lot of relationships. And I am on the same journey that you are. And it's like, hello, people, wake up, please. Yeah, you just, I don't know. You just want to smack people sometimes and say, girl, what are you doing? Get out of that relationship. And, you know, and unfortunately, some people, you know, they don't learn soon enough. Uh, you know, that that really wasn't the case here with Melissa. But it goes to show that there was a certain pattern of behavior that clearly she recognized because she was, you know, spurning his advances of trying to get back into her life. But I just feel like, you know, we don't talk about that enough in society about what to do. Like, it's OK to say no. Women are taught to be polite. And be quiet and be sweet and all of those things. And I say, oh, no, hell no, no. Um, and the, that's what I'm teaching my girls. So, I, you know, I've got a I've got five girls that are probably going to like break society in two. <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. That I, I just won't have it any other way. You know, it's just I, I just feel like I have an obligation to do that because I've seen and heard too much. And I, I know you do, too. I mean, you probably see it all the time with with your podcast and the people that you talk to yeah some of these stories are pretty horrific but it's just so amazing to see how they're able to pick up the pieces and put themselves back together again they're all a bunch of fighters they've all been able to work hard at fixing themselves and now they want to share their knowledge with other people to help them out there's a lot of great people out there advocating. And I mean, I think what you're doing is awesome. And there, I mean, there's so many people out there and I hope that it does make a difference because there's a lot of bad people in this world. I mean, there really is. And I don't know. It's scary. Very scary. I mean, now you just like really got to watch everyone. You got to watch the teachers. You got to watch, you know, if your kid's in a club or they're in a sport. Karate. I mean, they're everywhere, even in church. Nowhere has ever been safe, though, you know, and I think that a lot of it we just didn't know about when I was growing up. Like I said, I'm almost 50. And, you know, the rise of the Internet didn't happen until, you know, I was graduating high school. And so a lot of these crimes weren't talked about like they are now so regularly on the Internet. It wasn't as easily accessible, right? And I, I think that the internet has helped get the word out for, you know, these things that have been going on for so long. But you're right, places aren't safe. And there are certain places that predators troll for kids and for women. And we got to make people aware of that. Even in your own house, you your kid's on Xbox and he's sitting here thinking he's playing with like another fucking 12 year old kid when this is a grown ass man. And he's going to be like, hey, why don't we meet somewhere? Let's go hang out. Your kid goes thinking they're meet their buddy and you never see him again. Well, my children don't have those things. 
in my house. You know, one of the things that I do, uh, if it's okay to mention, is that I have a podcast. Is that okay if I talk about that? Oh, no, go ahead. Um, And it's called the Deep Dark Secrets Podcast. And our first season is we're talking about death fetish and death fetish pornography. And that's basically an online group of men, primarily men. I'm not picking on them. It's just what it is, who fantasize and plot and find sexual gratification in the murder of women. There are these online communities. And that is some scary, scary, scary shit. And we, you know, my co-host and I, her name is Alicia Lockhart. We've been working on this for over a year. The podcast has become pretty popular because people are scared. They're like, what the hell? I've never heard of this. But there really are these communities online. And so my kids have internet access. When I'm sitting right there and they got to do homework, otherwise they don't have things like, we don't even have an Xbox. I just do not allow the opportunity in my home. Uh, But I have little kids, you know, mostly little kids. And that's why, you know, as they get older, that'll probably change. But I think what I've just learned through the podcast and learning about all of these people that are online that are, they love death, that are fantasizing about the death of women. I mean, that's even heightened my awareness of, there are some really crappy people in this world who want nothing but murder and mayhem. Right. I just feel like they have to have unresolved trauma, especially to be into stuff like that. I mean, are they partaking in the murders or are they just getting their jollies off by looking at it? So it's really disgusting and I will try to keep it as um, profesh as I can here, but You know, a lot of it is fantasy related drawings, movies they make, you know, about stabbings, shooting, strangling, crucifying women and then having sex with their dead bodies. Um, Lots of necrophilia, which is defined as a mental illness. Thank you very much. It is. And so that's kind of frightening. So a lot of it is fantasy. And there's about 100,000 people in the world at any given time that are into this. And it's just sick. But there's a small percentage within these communities, I would say between one and five percent, that go and actually commit the murders. And um, we call them on our podcast, all of the people involved in this, we call them the fetishers. That's what they're what they are. And they spend hours and hours and hours online plotting and thinking about and being sexually satisfied by the thought of these brutal murders of young women. It's it's some of the most horrific stuff I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, when I became aware of that and we decided to launch the podcast the way we have, it's just something that I can't walk away from. So we're going to keep working to expose it until we can get this stuff shut down. I, it's It shouldn't be on the Internet. It shouldn't be. In, it shouldn't exist at all. No. I mean, for people to want to sit. And look and do things to a dead woman. Like, what the fuck? It's it's madness. It's really, it's horrible. And so one of the things that we've done is we've researched these producers that produce the movies, the, you know, sim- simulated snuff films. And we will pull their business license because that's a public document. And we will create an episode of our podcast and we'll say, you know, for example, hey, Salem, Oregon. Let me tell you about a guy in your community named John Marshall Washburn who likes to get his jollies off on, you know, fantasizing about, you know, dead women. And he's he's producing movies in your community. And oh, this has been pissing some people off, but there's nothing they can do about it because it's it's a public document. And so that's one of the ways that we're trying to combat this, because there's one guy in the community that I won't say because I don't want him to bother you because I said it on the podcast, your podcast. But he, you know, his daytime job we've discovered is running a photography studio that, you know, that he photographs families and like young kids at track meets. And, and then at night he's producing some of the most gory death fetish pornography that involves murder, rape, and necrophilia that you've ever seen. Disgusting. And so Alicia and I have decided to take him head on and that's what we've been doing since um, September. And we're going to, our season one lasts a year, so it goes from September until August, and then we'll take a little bit of a break and then for a few weeks, and then we'll launch the second season. Um, but every single week, every Monday, 
we release a new episode and we talk about a death fetish murder. We talk about a death fetish website or we talk about a death fetish producer and we expose the bastard. So the world knows who he is and they don't like us very much right now. I'm sure they don't. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. It's a little scary, but I don't care. Hope you have security cameras at your house. The security at my house, um, license to carry, you know, and my husband has a license to carry and, and we just live our life and we stay protected and we hope for the best. But my husband is super supportive. He thinks this crap has got to go. And I'm just in a situation where this all this kind of fell into my lap. And one of the reasons why I won't back down is that when I initially started investigating this death fetish bullshit, you know, they grabbed my IP address and they doxed me in the community. And they said, hey, fetishers, there's a woman named LaDonna Humphrey that lives in northwest Arkansas. And this is where she works. And this is how many kids she has. Shut up. No, I wish I was lying to you. And that's when I decided, once they knew who I was, I decided that I had to go full force after them. And so that's what I'm doing. That's crazy. It is very crazy. That is so scary. And I mean, social media has done so many good things for the world, but it's also turned it to shit. Making it easier now than ever for predators to pretty much just find whatever it is they're looking for. Not to mention, all you gotta do is put in somebody's name. You could Google search anyone's house. And that's scary. It is scary, and that did scare me. But you know, one of the things that it also did is it also it also empowered me because now they've already exposed who I am, right? And I'm not hiding behind a disgusting little pornographic screen name, you know, like jacking off to strangulation one two three you know whatever their name is or jessica x or snuff princess or those types of names i'm out here and i'm saying hey my name's Ladonna humphrey i live in northwest arkansas i'm a mom and i just happen to also be a podcaster and i'm going to expose you and i think that's a lot more powerful than hiding behind a screen name and making threads and so i've yet to have a fetisher show up and tell me their real name and show their real face They like to hide that information about themselves. And so I took the power back. And so did Alicia. And that's how we're fighting this. We're we're not hiding, but they're scattering like cockroaches. And we love it. Good. I love that. That's some sick shit. Awful. It's awful. And we're just continuing to find ways to try to shut it down. You know, if if they're selling these crappy movies with um, credit cards or using PayPal or something like that, we can get it shut down. Because they have rules around, you know, what they will allow with their company. And so, you know, PayPal and MasterCard and all those places, they say, no, we're not going to support this crap. No way. And so you can get it shut down. But then what happens is is they shut down for a small amount of time and then they just pop back up under a different name and they start using cryptocurrency, which is very difficult then to do anything to them. And so the best way we can fight them is to talk about it publicly. And so that's what we do every single week. Good for you. Do you guys show like their pictures and stuff? Oh, well, I mean, I guess you probably don't have pictures. We do actually on our TikTok and our Instagram and our Facebook, we will sometimes say, Hey, you know, Instagram, here's the face of a fetisher. And then we expose who they are, especially if we've been able to find their information through like a public business license, because then we feel very comfortable with that not being doxing um, because it's a public it's public record. And that's what they don't like about us. And, and some of these guys, some of these guys are attorneys and some of them are pediatricians or teachers. Uh, there's been a congressman. You know, there's been all kinds of crazy situations where we have discovered that they have really important titles in their community and yet behind the scenes they are glorifying the murder of women it's sick look how many lawyers congressmen celebrities partake in human trafficking to them children are just currency you're right i mean 
the and the internet brings all these kind of weirdos together for those purposes. And that's what's pretty scary to me. But I've been really surprised about how many people didn't know some of this stuff is actually going on. And they just don't believe it either. Like it, it's hard for them to believe that that can be real, can be real because they live in their own little bubble. And they're like, well, we don't see it on the news. Well, no, this stuff's not being reported on usually. You know what I mean? Until there's been like some sort of big bust or, or unless somebody's been murdered or those kind of things. And so I just think people need to be aware of all of it, all of the dangers that are happening. There's just so much crazy shit out there. I mean, People are fucking animals. I mean, y'all need Jesus. <laughs> yes, for sure. And, um, you know, I hope that, that our work, our advocacy work, will make a dent in some of this. And at least make people aware. At least make people a little bit more cautious about their surroundings and the kind of things that they're doing online and that they pay attention to what their kids are doing. You know, all of those things. Because, you know, knowledge is power. There's just too much shit out there to ignore. If you honestly think everything is peaches and cream, you've got to be living under a rock. Yeah, yeah, you do. And so we're trying to lift that rock because, I mean, I didn't know about that. I didn't know about death fetish until the past year and a half. And, you know, when I go and I speak and I talk about that, people are like, bitch, say what? Like, they don't believe me. And, and then, you know, you, you start going through the slideshow and showing them what the websites are and the dangers and what to look for and all those things. And people are just shocked. I'm glad I don't understand it. I mean, who wants to glorify something like that? I think it's just, it's a sickness, you know, sometimes a mental illness. Sometimes it's just the depravity of man. I mean, I don't know. I can't say for sure what makes these sickos tick, makes them want to kill, makes them enjoy killing or makes them sexually gratified from the thought of it or watching it or participating in it. It's, it's, it's hard to understand. I don't think people that are normal like you or I can ever wrap our head around it. It's just, it's never going to make sense to us. Right. I've always wondered and wanted to ask like, what gives you right to take someone else's life? Who made you God in a sense? Like, you could point at a person and be like, this person, this person right here, they deserve to die. Exactly. I just had this conversation with my husband. You know, I had a really emotional moment about the Witt case, about the Melissa Witt case. And we were just, you know, talking through all the different scenarios. And it's hard to not get emotional and say, what gave him the right to kill her? What gives these people the right to take a life? You know, you it's hard to understand because that's a forever thing. And it, it, it doesn't just impact the person that you murdered. It impacts their family, their friends, the community. It's, it's like a spider web. It just grows and grows. It's hard. It's hard to, um, to understand. And it, I think that's what makes this line of work, like what you're doing, what I'm doing, you know, it makes it difficult because it's heavy stuff because you're hearing about the worst of the worst on a regular basis. And it can be very, very heavy and um, burdensome, I think. Yeah. And some cases are going to stick with you even more. I try to look at it as a learning experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, I agree with that. It goes back to that, you know, experience, living experience, like what you're saying, it makes you better. Knowledge is power. You know, it helps you do better, be better, you know, maybe protect somebody else. But it's also very, it can be very discouraging. And, and so I try to focus on, you know, the things that, that I can, you know, the advocacy and the things that I can do and, you know, take some time off. You know, that's one of the things that I, I always like to ask people, like when I do an interview, especially when it's all true crime related. Do you have to step away from it sometimes? I mean, I do. Do you have to just say, hey, I need a break? Yes. There was a point when all I watched was crime shows. So it was all day, crime show after crime show after crime show. And after a little while, I was like, you, know, you got to stop because that's all that's playing in your brain. It was getting to the point where, and I mean, this is still good to do, but even if it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon and I'm at Target and I'm not ready to leave yet, I'm locking my car door. It's like you're constantly in flight or fight mode because you just don't know. But that's also not healthy. 
and it's not healthy on your body. Well, I mean, yeah. And I, I just, I have to take, I have to take a break sometimes. Like I have to take a day where I just walk away from everything that's true crime because it feels like my life is all true crime related. (laughs) And, you know, every aspect is true crime related, even my, even my full-time job. So yeah, I get overwhelmed. Because it's all negativity. I mean, sometimes you just have to remind yourself that the world really isn't full of shitty people. There's shitty people among us, but we're not all that way. There's actually still a lot of good left. Yeah. So I try to focus and do other things. Like I enjoy reading. I like to be outdoors. I like to be with my family. I like to connect with my friends. I'm active in my church. You know, there there are things that like that that I try to focus on that's not true crime related and it helps me kind of reset and find the good in the world. I like to volunteer and do things to help other people that helps with, with my mindset too, just to kind of help me stay centered and refocus. Right. I think that's smart because you have to have a balance. If that's all you see all day, you're either going to slip into like a deep depression or you're going to go manic. Because you're going to think everybody is out to get you. I mean, you're right. You have to have you have to have work-life balance no matter what you do. But I think it's especially important when your job centers around crime or, you know, the horrors of the world. And so I do try to do that. You know, I'm I take my I'm the one that takes my kids to school every morning and I pick them up like, you know, so during that time, I'm mom, I'm not private investigator, podcaster, you know, author, any of those things. I am mom and so I try to step away from it and try to take as many of those opportunities as I can because it's the healthiest thing to do and when I got involved in the death fetish um, investigation I ended up starting to see a counselor once a week um, just to help me cope with the things that I was seeing and reading and hearing and and that has been really beneficial to me too therapy can do wonders you know you do you need to talk it out if you want to heal you got to feel Absolutely. That's really good advice. You're absolutely right. It's been very beneficial to me. I would say that with every guest I had on this show, I've learned something. And there's even times that I learned something about myself. It's been eye-opening in so many ways. I just love it. That's cool. I that's that's important. I mean, that's I think that that's probably true in my life that I have been learning all kinds of different things about myself and about the world. So I think that's interesting that you worded it that way, because I'd never thought about it that way. But I really have. And it's not all been, you know, fear based, like, oh, I've got to educate myself to be safe. But just, you know, you like you learn what makes people tick, or you learn a lot in this, this line of work about childhood trauma and how it forms you as an adult and the choices that you make as an adult. That's been pretty fascinating. But yeah, I think that you're right. I think there's lots of opportunities to learn about yourself and others. I am actually in the process of starting my business. It's going to be a nonprofit and it's called The Crime Connection. What it's going to do is bring awareness to childhood trauma and how it really does affect people growing up. You see it all the time. Serial killers, they were either molested, abused, neglected. You know, they want their control back. They're going to take it. If you were bullied in school, okay, guess what? It's all a control thing. If we can teach children while they're still young how to turn around their trauma, this world could be a completely different place. That is cool. Please keep me updated about that because that is very interesting and very important. I mean, because that there is that connection. It does. It does come from childhood trauma. I would say 90 percent of that does. Yeah. Well, keep me updated on that because I definitely want to see where you go with that. We can support you, myself and my co-host for the podcast, or if I can personally support you in any way, I want to because that's really, really important work. Thank you. I am super excited. I'm just getting a little impatient with the Secretary of State, (laughs) but it should be like any time now. It's frustrating. We started a nonprofit in memory of Melissa Witt, and that was a long process. So, yeah, lots get 
pack your patience. That's what my grandpa used to say. <laughs> um, but it'll be worth it once you get all the paperwork done. So kudos to you. Like, I want to hear more about this. Yay. Well, I will definitely keep in contact with you. I'll keep you updated. Awesome. Yeah. If we can find ways to work together, I would love that. I would love that too. And I'm willing to help you guys. You know, this is my passion. This is what I feel like I was meant to do. Well, definitely let's connect because we've got lots of really, you know, cool and important things that are happening. And, you know, our nonprofit is called All the Lost Girls. And we focus on strangulation cold cases in the United States. And we've got a lot of cool things that are happening with that. Um, We're hosting a big event in May. It's called True Crime Fest NWA. And we're really excited about that. And lots of people are coming to attend. And, you know, we hope that people will learn from other podcasters and authors and, you know, people like you and me and and that that we can also honor the victims and their families and, you know, make some headway, make some connections and, you know, do some important work together. I would love to do that. I think with our passion, you know, we could maybe help change the world a little bit. Let's do it. I mean, that's girl. I'm not getting any younger. I'm going to be 50 on my birthday in August. So I I need to get busy. (laughs) So, you know, um, I'm all about doing what I can to make a difference. When I first started this podcast, I was doing it on other stories that I had read. But after a time, I just started to realize it wasn't fulfilling enough. I wanted to be more into the story than watching it or reading it somewhere. And then to be able to take that and help educate other people that might be going through the same thing. So many people think they're alone and you're not. There's so many people going through the same bullshit you are. So why not get help for it? Well, that's, I mean, it's important work. I love what you're doing and it really, it helps get the word out and it tells the story of the the people who are making a difference of the victims that need to be remembered all of the things so kudos to you for that hard work because podcasting is hard i learned that when we started ours in september it's not easy work is it no it's not (laughs) and i'm a one woman show i do it all wow i bow down because at least i have my co-host and she's the you know technical genius yeah well i i lean heavily on alicia lockhart for those things and then you know i do the script writing not all of it i mean we both do that you know script writing and then you know i help with a lot of the marketing and and all of those things because you do have to market the episodes and do the social media and all the things and so it's it's a full-time job and you know content creating is is not for the faint of heart so Absolutely. That's why I just cannot wait to start my nonprofit because that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do full time and try to make this world a better place. I'm in. So let me know how I can help. Yes. And let me know if there's anything I can do for you guys. I've got some ideas. So I'm definitely going to shoot them over to you um, in a couple of days over email because there's some things right now that I'm thinking that we could do. That might be pretty amazing. So, yeah, watch for that email. Okay. I'm excited now. (laughs) I like meeting people that, like, you just click with them and you just know that they're good people and that they want to make a difference. So, that's exciting to me because it it feels like those people are few and far between. So, I'm glad to have met you. Yeah, no, same here. I had a few minutes and I was like, oh, we're going to be just fine. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we bonded over technical issues when we first launched this episode tonight. And so for those of you, if this doesn't get cut out for anybody that's listening, like, I think I found one of my new besties. I mean, all over technical issues. So that's exciting. (laughs) I love it. I love it, too. So I really appreciate appreciate the opportunity to do this tonight really i'm i've been excited about this me too and i think a lot of useful information got out there if people wanted to contact you where would they find you i mean you got your book your podcast i know i have a lot going on so the easiest way i think to find me is just my website ladonnahumphrey.com so 
you can find me there. You can find me on um, our podcast website, which is deepdarksecretspodcast.com. And you can also get in touch with me through the whokilledmissywit.com website. So there's three websites. You can Google my name. I promise you it's going to come up and you'll find a way to connect with me. But I'm super responsive to emails and messages on social media. So, yeah, I definitely want people to to reach out. You know, if you've got a case that needs to be covered or you think you have information in the Melissa Witt case, definitely reach out to me, please. Absolutely. And you can stay anonymous if you need to be. We have a toll-free um, anonymous tip line that's on the Melissa Whip website. So if people want to call and leave a message, um, it's completely anonymous. And that number is very prominently shown on the website, whokilledmissywit.com, and on our Facebook page, Who Killed Missy Wit. So that's a good way to reach out to us, too. And then on the Deep Dark Secrets podcast website, we have a form where you can um, anonymously send us information. So lots of good ways to do it. If you don't want people to know who you are right now or ever. (laughs) So (laughs) is there anything else you wanted to add? No, you asked good questions. This was good. Good conversation. No, I just, like I said, I appreciate the opportunity and I'm excited to find ways to work together. Yeah, me too. I'm super excited. If you have any information at all, no matter how small you think it may be on the Melissa Witt case, please use one of the links below to get in touch with LaDonna. It is so important that justice gets served. If you know somebody who could benefit from this episode, please share it with them. And don't forget at crimeovercocktails.com is where I have all those useful phone numbers if you are in need of any kind of help, really. I got you covered. Make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review and we'll talk crime another time. Bye, guys. <laughs>